Well, it was a cold and stormy night. The thunder was growling mercilessly and the lightning was flashing across a cloudy sky when a young German genius by the name of Martin Luther was trying to make his way through the storm. You know the story of Martin Luther. This happened in the uh, early 1500s. His dad was a miner um, and mining was was a a dangerous profession, and so his father always wanted more for his son. Uh, Martin would have grown up in a house, a good Catholic home, where they would have prayed to St. Anne. St. Anne was the patron saint of miners, and it was her job to keep miners and their families safe in this perilous profession. Well, uh, Martin's dad had higher hopes for him because Martin was so smart. He, he was just very clearly academically gifted and had a lot of potential, and so uh, he wanted him to go into law, and Martin thought this was a great idea, um, and so he was in law school, and he had a promising career ahead of him. He would have been a brilliant uh, legal mind, it would have probably, knowing him, have reformed the legal system in Western Europe, but it was a cold and stormy night, and he was trapped outside. And he had a great fear of lightning. He was petrified of the possibility of being struck dead by that vicious lightning storm. And so in a moment of absolute terror and desperation, he did what he had been trained to do from young. He cried out to St. Anne to save him. And he said, St. Anne, save me. I'll be a monk. And in that moment, he made a vow. He made a bargain, a deal with St. Anne, who we now know wasn't even listening because she was dead, but he thought this was a deal with God that he was making through St. Anne, that if she managed to intercede on his behalf and Christ spared him from dying that night, being struck by lightning, that he would respond, that was the deal was, by becoming a monk. Well, you know what happened? Nothing. Uh, The lightning kept striking and the thunder kept rolling and the storm kept happening, but Martin Luther didn't die. He made it home that night and believed that the fact that he was alive was God's part of the bargain, and now he needed to be a monk. So he joined the Augustinian monastery, and that one vow uh, led him to make other vows to become an Augustinian monk. You have to take a vow of obedience to the Pope and to your friar. You have to take a vow of chastity, meaning you never may get married, and a vow of poverty, that you may never own anything. So he made all of these vows, lifelong vows, because of the one vow that he made, the one bargain he made with St. Anne. Uh, When his father was outraged at this decision and asked him why would he do this, his simple answer was, because I said I would. That was his only answer. He had made a vow and he had to keep it. Well... Thankfully, the Lord used that rash vow to change the world. But at the time, it was a rash vow. And tonight, we will see another rash vow, one that also turned out to have good and bad consequences for people involved. Turn to the days that the judges ruled Israel, chapter 11. Judges, chapter 11. To remind you what we saw in Judges, chapter 10, um, after we looked at uh, Tola and Zaire, Jair, two judges, Um, We then moved on to the fact that the nation of Israel had been crying out to their idols rather than to Yahweh until they got to a point where they desperately needed God's help and then they turn to him and cry out to him 
And his response, one of the most chilling commands in the Bible, was to just be consistent. Go cry out to your gods. You chose them, go cry out to them for them to save you. And then we saw how the nation truly repented, turning their back on the idols and putting that sin behind them and confessing that sin to God and begging him for mercy. And God in his graciousness forgave them. And the way that he forgave them, the way that he delivered them from this, the oppression of the, the nations that had risen up against them was the same way he's been doing throughout the book of Judges, to raise up a judge. Now, we've seen him raise up judges like Gideon with a, a direct call from the angel of the Lord. We'll see that happen again with Samson. The angel of the Lord comes to Samson's parents. But this is just a providential raising up. This is the right man at the right time for the right job, and there's no miracle involved, no direct revelation, just as we've been seeing in the book of Ruth in the morning, and yet God, using providence and circumstances, raises up this one man, and his name is Jephthah. Jephthah. So tonight we're going to see, as I read through, I'm not going to read the whole passage, I'm going to read it as we go, we're going to see five faces of a tortured hero. The five faces of a tortured hero. So as the story unfolds, we're going to get to know Jephthah from these five different angles, these five roles in his life. And just so that you know, you think, well, I really hope he gets to the, the part about the vow. Um, next week, I'm, going to, I'm planning to do a whole sermon just on vows and commitments and how they apply to you and your credit card debt and things like that. Um, so that's for, for next week. But for now, the first face of a tortured hero, Jephthah, the despised. Jephthah the despised. Let me read for you the, just the first five verses of Judges 11. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. So we'll stop there for now. Um, the first thing we find out about this Jephthah is uh, he, he has a past. It's not even by his choosing. He, there's circumstances of his birth that should have no effect on his life, but in this case they do. Um, he is born uh, a Gileadite. So if you picture the land of Israel and you've got the, the Jordan and the Dead Sea kind of, um, you know, on the, on the east side of the Jordan and the Dead Sea, you've got Gilead towards Moab, actually. Um, still part of Israel, and he comes from there. He's a genuine Gileadite. His father is Gilead. So just like we've learned how uh, Elimelech was old money, he was an Ephrathite. He was one of the founding families of Bethlehem. Uh, Gilead was one of the founding families of the place called Gilead. And so Jephthah is born into a prestigious family, a moneyed family probably, a powerful family. Um, but when his father dies, his brothers, out of greed, don't want to share the inheritance with him. And so they drive him out. Why him and not the other brothers? Well, because even though he was the son of the same father, he was the son of a different mother. So his half-brothers disown him. And it's all about the inheritance. But the Ammonites are fighting. 
Israel. This is part of God's judgment of Israel because they've been uh, worshiping Ammonite gods. So the Ammonites come up against them as part of God's judgment. They have cried out to God. We've seen that in chapter 10. And this is the story of how God is going to deliver them. But God in his brilliance and in his uh, creativity, shall we say, and in his sovereignty is going to raise up a judge in the way that he is communicating with Israel how they've treated him. So I want you to look for that parallel with Jephthah. Jephthah, the first role we see about him, the first characteristic of him is he is despised. He is rejected by his brothers, by his family, by his countrymen, and he is driven out into the wilderness to the land of Tob to live by himself, and there he is cut off from his family, rejected. He's he, he, he amasses to him worthless fellows. And the reason that that's thrown in there is um, because that becomes very relevant. So while the Ammonites are fighting, they're busy uh, attacking Israel. But apparently, Jephthah and his band of merry men, I kind of picture Robin Hood in the forest with uh, you know, uh, little John and the merry men around him, all the other outlaws, the worthless people that had been driven from their families for whatever reason and aren't functioning in society, they get together and Jephthah is their leader. And it seems from what's about to happen that this uh, band of, you know, uh, mercenaries kind of people were, were a military group. Um, they were able to take care of themselves through Jephthah's leadership and their military prowess. And we know that because of what happens next. Look at verse 6. And they, these brothers that drove him out, said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. So this is interesting. They disown him, but now that they need his military skills and they need his leadership and they need his little army, well, now they need a favor from him. And so they invite him back. No talk about inheritance, no talk about any money, but we want you to be our military leader. And the, the word used in the Hebrew there is for a military leader. But here we see some of Jephthah's um, diplomatic prowess beginning. His initial response is to point out the irony of the request, but then he tells them what God told Israel. Look at verse 7. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? You see the parallel? You see Israel coming to God saying, please help deliver us from the Ammonites. And you have the elders of Gilead. This also shows the influence of Jephthah's family. Gilead's, Gilead's family has now grown up. They are the elders of the area. They are the ones in charge. And the only thing they can think of to help them fight the Ammonites is Jephthah, whom they drove out. And so Jephthah comes. And this is a living parable of what Israel did with God. And the link is intentional because the word in um, verse 7, distress, you're now coming to call for my help in distress, parallels the word in verse 14 of chapter 10, where God says, go cry out to the gods whom you have chosen, let them save you in the time of your distress. So what God said to Israel, Jephthah is saying to Gilead. So you can see what God's doing here by raising up this judge in this way is he's underlining the point of how ironic this is that you've been, uh, you've despised me, you rejected me, you chose these other gods, but now in your distress, now when you need something, suddenly you're calling on me. And Jephthah's saying exactly the same thing to these people. This is an, a reenactment of what just happened. 
So what they do now is they, he's basically saying no. <laughs> uh, this is ironic. He's throwing that out there. So he's negotiating with them. Uh, it still doesn't get to the inheritance. But now they use a new word for what they're calling him to be. They call him not only to be the commander of their army, but the commander and chief or the, the head ruler of the people. Um, so Jephthah consents to lead them on those terms. Look at verse 8. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Well, that's why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So not just the ruler of the army, but the ruler of the people. And Jephthah said, verse 9, to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and Yahweh gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Yahweh will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So they're also making a vow here. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke um, all his words before Yahweh at Mizpah. Okay, so what's happening here is he is saying, before I do anything for you, I want this um, promotion, and I want to ratify it, and we're going to make it official. And they say, look, we're at your mercy. We, we, we've got no one else who can do what, what we believe you can do. So they do this. And so he comes, he becomes the ruler of the, the military band, but also he becomes the ruler of all the people. He becomes their chieftain, their head. And he has this inauguration, this investiture done at Mizpah, and they make this covenant with him, and it's all official. And so he becomes now really the ruler of Israel, or what we would just call the judge. Um, now, God would have had every right to ignore the pleas for help that came from Israel. And Jephthah would have had every right to ignore the pleas from these people. It's like, hey, me and my merry men, we're doing fine in Nottingham Forest. We don't need to be helping you. Um, but I'm going to do this because, of course, God is putting this together because God is gracious and forgiving. And in a sense, Jephthah is doing the same thing. Yeah, he's paralleling God's condescension to help them. But does it remind you of someone else who was described as despised and rejected. Jesus in Isaiah 53 would be predicted to be a man who was a man of sorrows, who was despised and rejected by his friends. And yet Jesus, in his graciousness, came to save the very people that were rejecting him. And so we have almost a, a foreshadowing here. As, as Jephthah's life is mirroring what's happening between God and Israel, it's also, in a sense, foreshadowing what will happen between the God-man, Jesus, the Messiah, and his people, Israel. So that's Jephthah the despised. Let's move on to Jephthah the diplomat. Jephthah is the only judge in the whole book of Judges who tries to avert war without fighting. It's quite interesting. He offers peace, really. Um, let's read verse 12 to 29. It's a, a little... Well... No, we'll, we'll read it as it goes through. Let's first just read verse 12 and 13. Um, then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered, <clears throat> the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. And now, therefore, restore it peaceably. The Arnon and the Jabbok are rivers that go down canyons. The Arnon it really looks like 
the Grand Canyon of Israel. It's this amazing canyon, and they run down, and so he's, he's talking about rivers that Israel apparently took from Ammon that now Ammon wants back. And they said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. So what happens here is Jephthah approaches them wanting peace and says, let's talk about this. Why is it that you're attacking us? And they say, well, because in history, uh, Israel took our land. We just want it back. This is kind of what Hitler said. You know, why are you taking Alsace-Lorraine? Well, well, because uh, after World War I, the League of Nations gave it to France, but it was always ours. Why are you taking the Sudetenland um, from, from Czechoslovakia? Well, because it was ours originally. Why are you taking Australia? No, 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 uh, Austria, sorry. Nobody wants Australia. Um, why are you taking Austria? Well, we're not. It's just, uh, they're German people too. It's called the Anschluss. They want us to. So uh, they would have... We were all the same people before. So it's that logic of, well, this land was ours. We're not actually doing anything wrong here. We're just taking it back. So Jephthah responds to them with a three-point sermon. And it's actually quite a, a, it's amazing how much space is given to this dialogue in the story. Like, we, just, we want to see the action. But it's interesting here how Jephthah is trying to, to avert war. And so what he, his three-point sermon, and actually in the, in the Hebrew there's a... Um, the, the terms used are legal terms. So it's almost like a court case that he's building. And in his court case, he's got this three line of defense. And his first point is, nah, no, we didn't. Okay, so that's what he said. We just read that in verse, um, what's it, verse 14. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. And Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom did not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab. But he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. And Israel then sent messages to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land and your country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through the territory. So Sihon gathered all these people together and camped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all of his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the land of the Amorites, um, who inhabited the country. And they took possession of the land of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from the wilderness to the Jordan. So this is his little legal defense. He says, no, we, we didn't. You've got your history wrong. We didn't just come and conquer you. In fact, we didn't even go into the land without asking for permission. And so we were trying to go around the land because we didn't want to do anything wrong. If you go and read your history books or, you know, the book of Numbers. Um, and... We just wanted to pass through on the way out. This is when they were in the Exodus, as they were coming out of Egypt, and they were going through the wilderness. And Sihon said no. And then, if you know from the history, what happened is Sihon sent his people to attack the, the people at the back of this column of Israelites that were escaping 
Egypt and kill the older people and the children and the defenseless people and then run away. They were like terrorists. So he says, well, let's just read the history books here. Only then did we defend ourselves against these people attacking us. And yes, because Yahweh was on our side, we beat you all. And so the land is ours fair and square. So that's the second point of his argument is God gave us this land. We took it fair and square. And your God, Shemosh is the, their God, he gave you your land. And so verse 23, So then Yahweh, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before the people of Israel. And he says this, And are you to take possession of them? Will, not, will you not possess what Shemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that Yahweh, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. So what he's saying here is, our God gave us this land. Your God, Shemosh, gave you your land. We're happy with the land our God gave us. Why are you attacking us? Is it because you're not happy with what your God gave you? So now he's kind of poking the bear a little here. But he's still making the argument, hey, you guys just need to back off. We didn't take this land from you. You fought us, and we... We beat you. A. B. Our God gave us this land. Your God gave you that land. Why are you so discontent with your God, Shemosh? Oh, you're saying our God's the more generous one. And then his third point is, well, we've been here 300 years, and there's been no other Amorite king that's wanted this land back. So what's the problem? How, how come you're the first ones to think suddenly, oh, this is our land? Verse 25. Now, are you better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aruer and its villages, and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years. Why did you not deliver them within that time? And then his conclusion, the coup de grace, I'm actually insulted that you said we've done wrong. He says, verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you. And you do me wrong by making war on me. Yahweh, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. So after the speech that he sends with the messengers, he basically says, you know, unless you back off, we're going to have to fight. And I'm just reminding you, we beat you before. Uh, God gave us this land, so it's still ours. He's going to be on our side too. And um, what do you want to do about this? And the application for us from Jeff, Jephthah the diplomat is, if you know your Old Testament well, you can settle um, Middle Eastern land disputes. That's pretty much all we know. <laughs> I mean, people are always talking about Palestine. Is this Palestine? Is this Israel? Who does this belong to? And, you know, it, it, this is not a political question that can ever be solved. This is an historical and theological question that's established in Scripture. Um, were these people there first? Were they not? How come the United Nations in 1948 gave this land to the Jews? And now what happens to the poor Muslim Arabs that live there, the Palestinians, or they just have to move aside, etc.? From a political point of view, it's extremely complicated. From a biblical point of view, God owns all the land, and he gives it to whoever he wants. And that doesn't always seem fair to us, but that's who God is, and that's what he does. And he gave this land to Israel, and it's theirs. And then, if you, if you do some history about the Six-Day War, where um, a bunch of Arab nations around Israel attacked them, and Israel fought back, 
And it, within six days, because they had such a powerful um, uh, air force, they just bombed all the, uh, the runways and all that kind of thing. Within six days, they defeated millions of people. This, this tiny little group of kibbutzniks um, beat all of these Arabs. And in six days, they took so much of their land that they, the United Nations asked Israel nicely to give it back. They took the land all the way to the Sinai, Egypt. And the United Nations said, okay, this is a problem. We get it. Everyone stop picking on Israel. They're way better at everyone else at fighting. Can you please give them the land back? And Israel had every right to say, nah, -uh. <laughs> you attacked us. We took this fair and square. This is how conquest works. You attack us, we beat you, we keep the land. That's what Jephthah's saying. Now, Israel did give it back. How's that working out for them? Did everyone back off and say, okay, you can have a little sliver? No, they're still trying to take that from them. Then you go and read what Jephthah said. Anyway, that brings us to the third face of our tortured hero. Jephthah, the dealer. He's making a deal here. Verse 28. But the king of the Amorites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So they're going to fight. Um, then the spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So this is where he makes his vow. He makes his deal, his bargain. This is his version of, save me, St. Anne, I'll be a monk. Save me from this war, help me defeat them, and I will give you whatever comes out of my door. I know you might have a little um, footnote there that says whoever. Um, you know, some scribes have been finicky. I don't think it's whoever. It should be whatever, just like the ESV has it. But it's unclear whether Jephthah knew that he was including human life in this or not. It's unclear what he's doing here. What we do know is that Offering human sacrifices as making a deal with your God for victory was something that was very common among the pagan nations. And so on the eve of the war, Jephthah strikes this deal with God. And what this shows us is that his thinking is being uh, infiltrated by the Canaanized worldview. He's thinking like pagans do. He's thinking, if I want, if I want to win the battle, I have to make a deal with my God the way... Everyone else makes a deal with their God. Because you have to remember, somebody actually asked me the, the other week, what's going on here with Jephthah? And I said, well, you need to come to our evening service because I'm about to explain it. And they were like, well, how can this be in the, in the Bible? You have to remember, the main theme of the book of Judges, everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. They're not listening to what God says. And so he makes this deal with God that he really shouldn't be making. This is a pagan act that Jephthah's doing. He shouldn't do it. But he's doing what's right in his own eyes. The only deal that applies to this situation is the deal that was made on Mount Sinai. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. 
called the Sinaic Covenant because of where it was made. This was a covenant that God initiated saying, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, in other words, in victory, shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. This is a very risky vow. This is not a good example of what we should do. And we will see the dire consequences that come from it. Bargaining with God is a human instinct, isn't it? You feel helpless, and so you, you go to the one who can help you, but you also feel unworthy because you are. And so that feeling of helplessness and unworthiness and being at the mercy of someone greater than you, what would you, ha- what would you do if you had to go to your, your boss or the owner of the company that you work for and you were desperate for something? You needed a... An, you know, a, a raise or vacation time or something that you know he doesn't owe you and you're not worthy of and you're the worst worker in the company, what would you say? You would have to come up with some sort of bargain. If you do this for me, I will, I will pay you back. I will work it back. I will work harder than anyone else has ever worked on this. I will not make you, I will make sure you don't regret it. You know, you have to offer them something. That's, that's how the world works. And this is how unbelievers think of God. And I don't want you as a believer ever to fall into that trap where you're bargaining with God as if he's someone that, ha- that needs something that you have. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything that you have. There's nothing you can offer him to get that from you. But yet bargaining with God is such a common thing among humans that it has been recognized by psychologists as one of the normal five stages of grieving. When you get incredibly bad news like a loved one has died or has a terminal illness, the five stages of, of greeting, they say is, the first one is denial. We're like, no, 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 it can't be true. And then when you finally realize it is true, is anger. Well, who are you angry at? Not the sick person. You're usually angry at God. And thirdly, bargaining. That's the third phase of grief, is bargaining with God. If you let this person live, then I will go to church every Sunday from now on. And then it turns into depression. And eventually acceptance. Why does depression follow bargaining? Because God's not listening to your bargain. That's not how you pray. You're not going to get any, anything back from God. And, and Jephthah thinks he's binding God into some sort of contract just because he says it. And people still function like this all the time. They just say stuff to God and, okay, I've said it now, so God has to do this. If you do this, Lord, then I'll do that. You completely misunderstand how God operates. He doesn't, ha- he doesn't need anything you have. He doesn't want you to bargain with him. He doesn't want you to buy anything from him. He's gracious. He's loving. He's giving. He's good. And he will give you what you need for his glory. If you're asking for his glory, and if it's good for you and good for others and good for him, he'll give it to you, and there's nothing you can do to earn it from him. In fact, it's insulting to try to earn it from him. So don't treat God the way the world treats God, by bargaining with him, the way Jephthah did. Don't make foolish vows. Next week, Lord willing, we will look at that in more depth. But for now, let me just leave you with this one. James 5, 12. James says, above all, my brothers, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. 
but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I mean, we all say things, and then when you really want someone to believe you, you have to kind of say, this time I'm telling the truth. So I promise. You ever done that? I promise you this time. Well, you said this last time. Yeah, but last time I didn't use the word promise. It's just a way of drawing two different ways of talking. It's a way of us saying, sometimes I say things I don't mean, and sometimes I say things I do mean, and the way I differentiate them is by taking an oath. I promise, I swear on my mother's grave. Your mom's not dead. Well, who is dead? You know, it's like, I, I need to swear on something. Because I want to show you that now I actually mean what I say. And, and James says, listen, the way you should talk is just always mean what you say. I said I would do it. You know that when I speak, that's what, I'm, that's what I mean. So what that, the onus that puts on us is that we now need to speak more carefully. So that if you, and I'll get into this more next week, so don't worry, but if you, you can make a commitment as long as you couch it in the right language and say, you know, I will do my best to do this. That's a promise you can make. Not I will do this. That's not a promise you can make. Just one other point I wanted to bring from this. It's interesting to me that Jephthah knows his Old Testament scriptures well enough to be able to argue from the history of the, the journey that the Israelites took through the desert. But he doesn't know his Old Testament well enough. The same books that give that history are the same books that outlaw child sacrifice. And then the law of Moses tells us how to relate with God and nowhere in there is a, a bargaining or a sacrifice of this nature. And you've met people like this. Maybe you are one of these people. <laughs> Where you have your pet theological view that you know real well. But you don't know about the other verses around it. Oh, you're all about exactly when the rapture is going to happen. But you don't read the next verses that talk about what the purpose of knowing your eschatology is. So that you can comfort others. And you can have hope and that you can live a holy life. Oh, one of the most... Um, jaw-dropping examples of this in my ministry was when a young man who I knew, I had been counseling him, I knew that he was um, using drugs and selling drugs. And he came and was very concerned that in our church we had a, um, a Christmas tree that had some ornaments on it, you know, the little balls that we have. And he said that those balls, he had been doing research about it, uh, and that the, having orbs was like a pagan thing to do and how the Christmas tree had these pagan roots and how he was very concerned that our church was like, uh, you know, promoting and endorsing this pagan thing. And I wanted to be like, so selling drugs to kids is okay, but Christmas trees, we're against that. And like, you just want to be like, listen, brother, read the whole Bible before you come with a view on anything, okay? Don't just pick your one little thing that you're super righteous about and how everyone else is getting wrong and you're super judgy with everyone else, but you, you're, you're, you're missing the point here. Doesn't Jesus say this in, um, Jesus says this to the, in the Pharisees, Matthew 23, verse 23, that they were tithing mint and dill and they were straining out a gnat, but they were swallowing the camel. 
you know, they're completely missing the point. They're doing this huge thing wrong here, but they're doing this one little thing right, and so they focus on the thing that they're doing right. Their pet little theological thing is tithing. And then forget about the lack of mercy and grace that they have with people that God wanted them to have. So don't be that person. Another person once refused to join our church because we had um, instruments, musical instruments, and he had this very strong conviction that, uh, that you should only... The only instruments should be human voices, and he had this whole complex theological thing. Well, he went from church to church in town and couldn't find a church, and a year later I met him, and he still hadn't joined a church because his conscience wouldn't let him, he said, because we should only be singing without instruments. So you've got this complicated theological view that you've built up with this whole little argument of why you can't have a piano in church, but the verse that says, do not forsake the assembling together of the brethren, that one you don't even read. You haven't been to church in a year, buddy. Maybe you need to just sit under the preaching of God's word and see if that piano thing becomes less important to you. Don't be that guy. People who hold to election, but then they won't evangelize. People that hold to grace, but they won't repent. People that want to serve in the church, but they don't want to give financially. Jephthah had great faith, but he lacked basic knowledge about God's nature in worshiping God. Let's move to the fourth face of our tortured hero, Jephthah the deliverer. So this is where God gives him victory. Verse 32, so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and Yahweh gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aruwar to the neighborhood of Manith, 20 cities, as far as Abel Kremamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And the point there just is that the military campaign was so successful and so all-encompassing and so encroaching on their land that the Ammonites just backed off and they just said, we're done, we're done with Israel. Which was God's delivery of Israel. That was the point, remember? God raises up a judge to deliver Israel from the oppression. So he gives it. And God's credited with this victory. It doesn't have anything to do with Jephthah's deal, but now we've got this problem. Jephthah said, if you do this, I will do that. Now there's this victory And so the vow has been activated. The implication was, look, if I lose, I don't have to do this thing for you. But I didn't lose. So Jephthah's trying to manipulate God, and God isn't going to be manipulated. God's not saying, well, I don't want to to endorse this bargaining thing, so I'm going to let them lose. No, that's not how God operates. God raised up this judge to deliver Israel, and he's going to deliver Israel, and any little side bet that he has going on doesn't even count. And so now we have this problem that comes in our fifth face of our tortured hero, Jephthah the dad. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, behold, his daughter came out to meet him. With tambourines and with dances, she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes in grief and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to Yahweh. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that Yahweh has avenged you on 
your enemies and the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down in the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And so he said, go. Then they sent her away for two months. She departed, she and her companions, and they wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. It became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, for the Gileadite for four days in the year. Now, as I said, next week we're going to get more into that and the different views of how that played out because a lot of people, just commentators, they just can't stomach that that's what happens. So they, they try to explain it away. But spoiler alert, he, he burnt his daughter. He killed her. And friends, this is why theology is so important. People say, well, why are you always teaching theology? Why don't we just love Jesus? Because people don't know how to love Jesus unless they know his theology. Why don't we just love each other? Because you don't know how to love each other if you don't know theology. And this is an example of that. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And you see this today. You say, well, if two people love each other, why can't they just get married? Even if, even if there's rules in the Bible against those people getting married, like they're the, the same gender. You think you're being loving, you think you're being generous, but you don't know theology, so you don't know how that fits into God's plan of holiness. Well, that's what we see here. Jephthah thinks that sacrificing his daughter is what God wants him to do because God wants him to keep his vow. The little girl thinks that this is what God wants her dad to do. She thinks she's doing the right thing too. She's being very sacrificial. He's not even taking any responsibility. He's blaming her. You've brought me low because of this vow that I made to God. What's the solution to all of this? A solution I often give to people who come to me for counseling. You need to get into a time machine, go back in time, and not do that. That's the solution. Don't make rash vows. Don't write checks you can't cash. Theology is about knowing everything the Bible says when you interpret one verse. That, to me, is just a, an easy way to remember what the word theology means. It's the concept of knowing everything the Bible says when you look at what one verse means. So you don't go to one verse that says, if you make a vow to the Lord, you have to pay it, and you just pull that out and then end up killing your child because you made a rash vow. How about looking at all of what God says about who he is and what he wants and what your responsibilities are to your family and to yourself and to him and bring that to bear on what do I do now that I've put myself in a situation that has an impossible exit? Deuteronomy 12.31 says, You shall worship Yahweh your God in that way. Sorry, uh, Deuteronomy 12, talking about after how the pagans worship God. You shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way. For every abominable thing that Yahweh hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. So he knows the book of Moses well enough to argue a land dispute. But Deuteronomy 12, 31, that says, Never do what the pagans do, because the worst thing that they do is that they burn their daughters. 
That part doesn't even factor into his decision-making here. And so he decides to keep his vow. And all of this is a big problem for us because of Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith where Jephthah is named as a man of great faith. Next week I'll explain more of that, but for now know this. There is no such thing as a flat character in reality. So in literature you have, you know, Cinderella's stepsisters, they're bad. They're completely bad. The fairy godmother, she's good. She's completely good. Those are called flat characters. And you use them in literature. But this isn't literature. This is history. These are actual people. And in reality, there are no flat characters. There is nobody on earth that's perfectly good all the time. Just like there's no one who's just perfectly bad all the time. People are complicated. And so what the the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's commending this one aspect of Jephthah, that he had faith in Yahweh, that he believed Yahweh existed, even though all the people around him didn't. That's what he's being commended for. He's not being commended for all of these deeds. As I said, we'll look at more of that next week. For now, just know this. Martin Luther learned his lesson. Martin Luther learned his lesson. Yes, he kept his rash vow to St. Anne. He became a monk. The rest is kind of history. Started the reformation of the Catholic Church that we now call Protestantism. But in so doing, he realized that other vows that he made were vows he shouldn't have made. He should not have made a vow of obedience to the Pope. He should not have made a vow of chastity, not being allowed to get married. And so guess what he did about those vows? He broke them. He broke them because he compared what God wanted him to do in Scripture that he didn't know before with what the Pope was saying and say, I have to choose what God says. Here I stand, I can do no other. And it also meant he could marry Katie Van Bora. More on that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the reminder that we don't need to bargain with you and make deals with you. That you have already cleansed us of our unrighteousness through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you for this reminder that we are all flawed. Everyone is flawed and everyone is in need of a Savior. We also learn that you are faithful to forgive and to deliver. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be wise with our speech, with our commitments in this week. That you would help us to honor you in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. In Jesus' name, amen.